0: and welcome to this edition of the IIEA Insight Series. My name is David O'Sullivan. I'm the Director General of the Institute, and I'm absolutely delighted to have as our special guest today, Constanza Steltenmuller, who is a a good friend from my my time in Washington. Uh, She's a renowned expert on German, European, and transatlantic foreign policy, security policy, and strategy. She's the Director of the Center on the United States in Europe, and the inaugural holder of the Stern Chair on Germany and transatlantic relations at Brookings. She held the Kissinger Chair on Foreign Policy and International Relations at the Library of Congress, Uh, from October 2019 to March 2020 and served as the inaugural Robert Bosch Senior Fellow at Brookings from 2014 to 2019. And she writes extensively uh, in in many, many journals, but particularly the Financial Times, where she had a very interesting article uh, pertinent to today's uh, discussion uh, concerning the issue of neutral states faced with the changing security situation in Europe. Uh, Today, we're going to be discussing the implications of the midterm elections uh, for US policy on security and foreign policy uh, and European attitudes towards the the ongoing Russian Russian war in in Ukraine. Constanza, welcome and and thank you very much for joining us.
1: Well, thank you very much for having me on. It's a pleasure to be in Ireland, even if it's only virtual, I'd much rather be there in person, obviously.
0: Well, I hope one day we get you here in person. It would be be a pleasure to have you. um, let's let's start with with the the, the sort of the midterms. Uh, the the red wave turned into more of a, a red ripple. Um, the, the the Democrats performed better than expected, but nonetheless, the Republicans did take back the House, even by a narrow margin. Uh, the Democrats held the Senate. What if any are the implications of of uh, these midterm elections for American security and foreign policy and obviously particularly the the, the war in in Ukraine?
1: Um, Thank you, Um, really important question. Um, I would like to quote a joke made by President Biden, the only red red rave that, that there's going to be is if their German shepherd commander turns over the cranberry sauce at the presidential Thanksgiving dinner. Um, which I thought was not bad. But um, I think with the situation that you've just described, which indeed was not what most analysts, including me have expected, um, I think you have have two important consequences. One, the Republican margin is so small that it is expected generally that the Republicans are are gonna spend a fair amount of time fighting with each other over the future of the GOP. I think generally that their bandwidth to force changes in foreign and security policy on the administration or to hamper it, I think has been significantly reduced, at least uh, compared to expectations before the midterms. That's one point. The other point is that generally the MAGA wing of the hard right of the Republican party has been much less empowered than um, was expected. A lot of Trump-endorsed candidates, conspiracy theorists, election deniers, and so on, um, lost their bids. And in general, you have uh, it was the more reasonable Republicans, uh, that being a obviously a a term to be defined. Um, but generally, the more reasonable candidates were the ones that won the day. That in turn, I think. Supports the internationalist line of the Republican leadership, um, which has been leaning into the administration's policy on the invasion of Ukraine by Russia. So I would expect little change there, except what that the of course the Republicans will attain will attempt to attain some sort of control over the administration's decision, something they call oversight. Um, but I think in substance, it won't change much. And um, I mean,
0: President Trump, when he was in office, uh, frequently criticized NATO. Um, the general view I think would be that the, the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine has consolidated NATO. We've We've seen Finland and Sweden joining. Uh, I, I i I hear nothing but support for NATO uh, in in washington do you do you think the the threat of of uh, American loss of uh, affection for NATO and a sense of being exploited by the europeans uh, is is has receded completely or is it still no that- i
1: don't i don't and i and I, do, I don't think that's actually quite right first I think it's important to remind that Finland and Sweden haven't joined yet. And there are two important opponents in NATO to that one is Turkey, um, which has a beef with the Swedes in particular for their support of Kurdish opposition politicians. Um, And secondly, the Hungary, which um, is uh, sort of much closer to the Kremlin and indeed to Beijing. Uh, than than anybody else in Europe would like and and can be expected to act as a as a spoiler even if the Turks for for one reason or another decide to back down. So so the the Finnish and, and Swedish accession is not a done deal and the Finns and Swedes are going to try and hang together here. Um, the, the Finns no doubt would not leave the Swedes in the lurch and and join on their own. Um, that's one point. The other point that I think is important to make is that. Um, there are three tribes, as, as a recent piece for the European Council on Foreign Relations by Jeremy Shapiro and Maida Ruge has called it, in the in the Republican camp. Um, the restrainers, um, the prioritists, and the primacists that have quite different takes on the utility both of NATO and European, European allies. In the, in the context of Ukraine, I think there is an understanding that NATO leverages American power and American purpose in Ukraine. But beyond that, um, the the views are quite different. Um, The restrainers feel that uh, Ukraine and Russia is not their fight. They haven't been empowered by this election, but they will no doubt try and make their presence felt. And the primacists and the and the prioritists are, care much more about China, the, the what they call the threat from China and the future of Taiwan than they do about Russia and Ukraine. And that sort of brings me to my last point, which is that the biggest unknown variable in this entire situation is what China decides to do um, about Taiwan and at what point in time. And if China, while, while the, the war in Ukraine is still going strong, decided to make a move on Taiwan that would put the Americans um, and the Republicans in a very difficult position. And might, I think, if the Americans ended up saying, listen, we have more important things to do here, leave the Europeans in NATO in a very, very exposed place.
0: What was the, the, the take in, in Washington on the recent meeting between Biden and Xi, which was, uh, you know, came, came a little unexpectedly. Uh, they had sort of been refusing to talk to each other and then suddenly found time mm-hmm. for, for quite an extensive meeting at, at, in margins of the G20.
1: True. Um, I think that was, um, must have uh, caused a sigh of relief across the Alliance um, because there was a feeling that it is just generally not helpful if leaders have no contact with each other And the meeting appeared to have been constructive, um, which was also more than than could have been assumed. Then again, I think all of us have the rather vivid memories of the public images of the 20th party uh, Congress of the the Chinese Communist Party, and the sort of very deliberate and theatrical assertion of absolute and very hardline power by Xi Jinping over his his party uh, competitors and rivals and and so I think any relief over um, the meeting between Biden and Xi is tempered by the memory of those images.
0: What I mean, uh, we hadn't intended to move to China, but since you raise it, it's 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 a very important point. Um, uh, Chancellor Schulz, of course, also went to 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 meet Xi. I think he was the first uh, foreign minister to first foreign uh, head of government to to meet him after his coronation as president for life, or well, his third term, anyway um uh, subject to a lot of criticism and and yet many would say he actually did raise some of the more thorny and difficult issues quite openly which he including the issue of taiwan how Correct. was how was how was that finally perceived in, in in washington
1: so yes as you as you say it uh, there was a lot of unhappiness both in in germany and europe and and i think in washington over the circumstances of the planned visit. It was, he was the first leader, as you say, to visit Beijing right after those um, startling and disturbing images from the the party Congress. Um, He had rejected pleas from critics to to take fewer business leaders on his trip or to take uh, the French president and, and representative of the EU along rather than going on his own. This was perceived as yet another instance of Germany um, you know, on, on the lookout for its own national interests. And, and there were concerns indeed that he would not raise these points. And I, and I think that that all that barrage of criticism that the chancery got before the visit made an impact. Schultz published a, a, a long piece, in a German newspaper before his departure, explaining his positions and saying that he would raise all these points and, and he did. And I think not not he not just mentioned human rights, um, you know, unfair business practices in Taiwan. He got the Xi Jinping to say in public for the first time that China opposes escalation in Ukraine and particularly opposes threats with or even worse, the use of nuclear weapons by Russia in Ukraine. That was incredibly important, and I and I think was appreciated in 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 uh, in Washington. The, I think the larger question of German and European relations with China, and whether that then runs into um, you know uh, conflict with American purposes, uh, is is remains an open question.
0: Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. Maybe maybe we'll come back to that. And um, what I wanted to then explore with you is you know. As always in America, no sooner have you finished one election than you start the next, <laughs> uh, and we're now on the road to 2024 mm-hmm. and uh, you've given your assessment, about you know the, the, the impact of the midterms, how do you think. Um, the, the Russian war in Ukraine, the issues with China. Um, uh, issues of you know American foreign policy generally. How how important do you think that's going to play in the in the presidential election, and and what should we as Europeans be 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 watching in that regard?
1: Um, I'm not sure that's the most important question, frankly. But but I'll.
0: Oh uh, no, go well. If you think it's a more important (laughs) one, answer (laughs) it. No no, no problem. I mean, it is.
1: You and I are policy wonks, so so obviously we gravitate immediately to the policy issues. Um, and, and those will matter, but I think to speculate today on what will matter in two years, uh, I think um, you know, we're on thin ice there. Whereas what matters immediately is the fact that the two purported candidates, Trump on the Republican side and Biden on the, um, on, on the, on the Democrat side, um, are, are two, but their own camps unattractive candidates. That's the problem. Biden has just turned 80 and is, you know, why I think has had some quite remarkable successes as president um, and not just in this midterm election is showing signs of his age. Um, He is, I think, less full of beans than the just departed uh, leader of the house, Nancy Pelosi at 82, uh, who I think is a, you know, a miracle of modern, um, (laughs) of of energy and, and, and purpose um and general sort of full of beansness biden isn't quite on the on the same level and so a lot of people in the democratic party are unhappy and concerned at the the proposition of biden running again in 2024 that so it's also however not clear at all who the candidates would be who'd be willing to challenge him and to raise and or even in fact to raise that issue in public but that has to be done at some point, I think, within the coming year. That's the, the Republican side. And, and again, I I'm, I'm don't think that there is any visible candidate right now who would be the obvious choice. I don't think at any rate that it is Vice President Kamala Harris, who to some degree has, has disappointed as, as of, uh, and, and has not fulfilled the hopes that people had in her as a natural successor. On the Republican side, it's really notable how many of Trump's most devoted supporters, both in office and afterwards, have suddenly um, distanced themselves from him? Uh, Beginning with his daughter Ivanka, who put out a statement uh, before her father's announcement saying that she did not intend this time around to support him in politics, uh, which was duly noted. Um, Some of his most important funders have, um, have stepped back from him. Uh, he is, of course, I think, embroiled in at least five judicial cases at this point, and and the Department of Justice has just appointed a special prosecutor for him, um, Jack Smith, uh, who before that was pursuing war crime war criminals in The Hague, uh, and and then finally, um, people like Michael Pompeo, the the former um, foreign um, secretary of state in in Washington. Uh, And others have very notably sniped at him in recent days on Twitter, um, calling him a loser and a whiner, essentially. Um, So that's not going particularly well. Are there other candidates? Um, There again, the field isn't quite clear. The obvious candidate people are pointing to is Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida who um, had a commanding 20 point win in the elections. Um, in the midterms. The problem with DeSantis is that he, like many of the young pretenders in the Republican Party, is singularly charmless. Um, (laughs) And so I find it, I find it hard to, I, I, I wouldn't have the nerve to assure you now that he'll be the candidate in 2024.
0: Okay well maybe we'll maybe we'll have you back in 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 a year's time to see uh, to see where it's we time. where we where we are in 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 the run up to that very what will be nonetheless a very important election uh, for, Absolutely. for America and 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 for the rest of us let's come back to the more immediate uh, crisis that we face and that's the, the horrible war in Ukraine which has taken a, a particularly well it's always been nasty taken a particularly nasty turn with Massive, really? massive shelling of of civilians, uh, uh, buildings, uh, it, it, energy infrastructure as we head into a, a cold winter. So it's it's turning into a, a deeply. I mean, it was always horrible, but uh, it's it's clearly going to continue to to get nasty. How how is how is the the, the progress of, of of this this conflict uh, seen in in DC, and um, is there an end game in sight? I mean. Uh, some people, uh, General Miley I think mentioned at one point, maybe we should be talking more diplomacy. The general view is this is not the time to, to be talking diplomacy. The, the Ukrainians uh, are, are, are defending themselves well and indeed attacking well. What, what is the, 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 the prevailing DC view of, of, of where this conflict is heading?
1: I'm not sure that there's a prevailing DC view. As, as you know, um... DC is always a, a roiling stockpot of, of, of views on, on anything at any given time. But my my sense is that General Milley, who's the chief of staff of, the, um, of the, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, I'm sorry, um, his, his position is not even cha- shared widely in the military. Um, I think there is, in fact, a a general take that while it is important um, to never exclude negotiations, and it is important particularly for the Ukrainians never to take the position that they won't negotiate at all with the Russians, the past and current atrocities committed by by the Russians in Ukraine um, are such that, and coupled with demands for capitulation by Ukraine in the context of negotiations. Um, in other words, no, no, no negotiations at all except on Russian terms, on the Kremlin's terms, um, make that that proposition completely untenable at this point. Um, I think it is important to understand that the Russians won't come to, to the table unless they understand that they have been militarily defeated, that there are no military options anymore for them in Ukraine. Now, it could take a while given on, based on their current behavior until they come to that, um, until they come to that realization. I personally do not believe, believe that this war is winnable for them and to those in Germany and elsewhere who say, but they're a nuclear power and they have escalation dominance, I have only one word, Vietnam. The North Vietnamese basically threw out a nuclear, the nuclear, uh, the the nuclear superpower, uh, and and I expect that even if Russia dug in in eastern Ukraine, even if Russia goes on with its bombardment of civilian structures, the Ukrainians would then turn to to partisan warfare, and and would make life so miserable for the Russians that I cannot see the Russians prevailing in this in this war
0: two things I'd like to push you a bit further on I mean there are those who talk about you know Ukraine which has been militarily far more successful than anyone uh, imagined um pushing forward into Crimea um you know maybe even seeking to retake the the, the territory held currently held by Russia in 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 the Donbass region do do you think thats is, 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 is the view in Washington that, that, is, that, that is possible militarily for the Ukrainians to, to go beyond a, sort of defending what they held before, but actually trying to retake territory?
1: So it seems to me that the two things that we've learned and that Washington has learned in this war is that a lot more is possible on the Ukrainian side than anybody would have believed. So I think people have become a lot more careful with predictions. At the same time, the other thing that we've learned is that is that the Russians have absolutely no limits on what they're willing to do to Ukraine, which is truly shocking. Yes. And and this you know runs the gamut from from war crimes, um, torture, um, the forced uh, taking of children, and and bringing them to Russia. Um, to to the destruction of civilian infrastructure heating plants, 70% of Ukraine right now apparently is without electricity uh, due to the recent missile bombardments. And uh, and of course the, the Ukrainians have now made it clear that something that they weren't willing to publicize beforehand, that all of Ukraine's four nuclear power plants have been subject to extended shelling. The problem there is not um, the destruction of the power plants themselves, but the cutting off of the um, of the power supply, which would then force them to go on emergency power, and would would if that emergency power supply was cut off, uh, potentially lead to meltdown of the of the reactor inside, yeah. with, with 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 the consequences that that we saw um, decades ago in Chernobyl. Um, that is that is military action on a scale so reckless that it literally it beggars belief and and I think dwarfs anything we have seen in recent decades and and I've, I find it astonishing that there is not a, a harsher reaction in the non-western world to all this because it um it suggests you know a Russian power willing to do almost anything in its, in its vindictive pursuit of, of attempts to subjugate and obliterate U- Ukrainian nationhood. Um, there, I think the, the, the... I have to confess to you that it's not quite clear to me where, where debate in Washington could be heading on this. My, my sense is that this is, on, on this point, uh, the, the president is very much in control. And the president has been decreeing a policy of prudence on the battlefield in terms of support for military and other support for Ukraine, which um, ironically is very much in line with the prudence of the German chancellor, which is um, basically we must avoid any weapons deliveries as the West to Ukraine, which could be taken by Russia as an excuse for further escalation, and in particular for the use of nuclear weapons. it seems to me that the Russians are already escalating, and that to say that say more um, anti-aircraft or, or, or anti-missile defences or attacks given to Ukraine by the West would be in any way a qualitative shift of Western support on the battlefield strikes me as as highly academic. Um, and I think that we are we are already given Russia's missile barrages uh, at what the Um, The policy wonks like to call it an inflection point, um, where where I think it is time for for the world really to make clear its it's horror and disapproval uh, at what is happening here. I I think we are on the cusp of a massive humanitarian crisis in Ukraine, which um, puts us before an incredibly difficult policy choice. Do we, do we support human, these, um, d- do we send humanitarian aid into Ukraine, um, risking that it too will be attacked by the Russians? Um, or do we instead expect a massive outflow of refugees to Europe with potentially de- politically destabilizing consequences, which presumably, presumably is exactly what the Kremlin wants. Um, and, and I think here, I'm honestly wondering why we aren't having an emergency meeting of the of the UN national uh, of the UN Security Council at this point. Seems to me that that would be in order.
0: Well, I mean, I, I, I thank you for your graphic description of just how horrific this is, and it is a yeah. catalog, it is a catalog of horrors. I agree with yeah. you, and uh, the the reckless uh, disregard, not even disregard, targeting of clearly civilian. Uh, targets, hospitals, uh, apartment blocks, uh, energy infrastructure, uh, and so forth is is as you say. It it just seems that Mr. Putin has no limits I, I, as to what he's prepared to do. I mean, we saw some of this in Syria, unfortunately. I mean, we had a taste of it. Uh, we're now seeing it on a much much larger scale, and I agree with with massive humanitarian and consequences. I mean, we've already had we
1: it. Saw it. We saw it in Grozny. And, yes. in in the mid 90s, we've seen it it in the obliteration of a a glorious um, city of antiquity, Aleppo in Syria, by with with the support of Russian forces. And and it seems to me that that is where where the Russians are currently heading and it is incomprehensible to me uh, how we could possibly remain passive in the face of, of this amount of human suffering and destruction. But I mean, I'm suggesting that we are being passive, but I, but I wonder whether we are doing enough to orchestrate a global, um, a global message of, of disapproval and and potential, you know, uh, additional sanctions.
0: But of course, you mentioned you mention the Security Council, but of course, as we know, the, the Security Council is paralyzed by the fact that uh, one of its members is the perpetrator of the,
1: of the of the evil we're talking about. Yes, I'm not suggesting. I'm not. I, um, well, uh, it's, it's entirely possible that both uh, that, that both Russia and China would uh, would exercise vetoes to the UN Security Council even meeting. Uh-huh. It seems to me that we've reached a point where where I wonder whether the other members of the Security Council, not just the the other three members of the per, the P five, the permanent five who have nuclear weapons, but the non permanent members could not um, organize an extraordinary meeting without Russia and China and say, this is where we are. This is a horrific violation of of international law and order. And and it is the Russians and the Chinese who are standing in the way um, of of, of a formal disapproval and an ending to the conflict. And and this shows that how dysfunctional the the Security Council has become. I, I think it's time for that.
0: Um, yeah, no, no. I mean, I, I, I think it's a, uh, you know, it, it's, it's a very valid point. And of course, uh, Ireland is 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 coming to the end of its time as a as a, um, a temporary member of the of the Security Council. Uh, I forgot that. Well, there you are. Yes, well, uh, well You yeah, know, point, 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 point. Well taken. Uh, let's turn to to the European position in all of this. Um, uh, as always, you know. Europeans are from from Venus and and uh, Americans are from Mars we we've had this slight tension and indeed we've had degrees of within within Europe we've had some Europeans are more Martian than 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 from Venus uh, um what is the view i mean i, I assume the view in, in in Washington is still that these Europeans are not quite doing enough uh, and and uh, you know well,
1: people... you know yes, yes and no to quote one of my favorite um political um, comedians, Tom Lehrer, I think the Europeans have proven to be much more warlike and mean um, than, than uh, the Biden administration would have expected. And it, that is appreciated. Two things here. For, for one, this is an administration that understands America's economic interdependence with Europe, and for which the fact that the Europeans were, were willing and able to join it in the most massive sanctions that uh, have been seen um, was understood as a general genuine leveraging add-on to American power. Right? Um, in, in a conflict that on the Western side is waged with economic means, um, European participation has been on you know at islet and not just you know, with, with boutique add-ons, as would have been in the, the case in or was the case in the Balkans Wars, for example. Um, so, but they've also been pleasantly surprised by the Europeans' willingness to send actual military support and the European Union's willingness to fund that military support. All those things are revolutionary and, and the people who do Europe in the National Security Council, in the White House, um, I think are aware and appreciative of that. That said, I think they're also frustrated by, by the sort of academic theological almost debates that we have about military support and escalation. And that, of course, very much um, includes the German debates, which are crucial here. Mm. And yes, of course, there is a burden-sharing debate. The American administration has, has deployed staggering amounts of, of money towards both military support and, and civilian humanitarian support. Um, and I've honestly, I've I've forgotten the actual uh, numbers, but they are significantly in advance of what the EU collectively is is, is doing. And yes, there is, of course, a debate about that. The answer to that, uh, and it's unfortunately only a partial answer um, from the European side is well, we're hosting far more refugees than you are, America. The Americans have received um, a negligible number of Ukrainian refugees, some of whom have come over the Mexican border um and and the other thing is the other point of course is that we pay a far more direct price for the sanctions um in in terms of energy prices and inflation than than americans are that somewhat mitigates the the contrast um in burdens but it doesn't quite go you know the the, the, the four mile
0: no but it is it is true i i, I mean i detect uh, i'll be participating uh just after this, in another discussion about energy policy, but there is, mm-hmm. as you know, a, a lively debate in Europe about the, the competitiveness consequences of of all of this, mm-hmm. and particularly, you know, are we looking at the deindustrialization of Europe uh, as as uh, energy costs rise? As energy costs are much higher in Europe than they are in the United States, uh, uh, is there any? Uh, and we also have, unfortunately, the the, the economic debate. We have the the uh un- unfortunately titled from an irish perspective uh, inflation reduction act which abbreviates to ira um <laughs> uh, uh, but we have the americans basically saying yes we're subsidizing and by the way you should do it too because that's how we that that's that's what cooperation amounts to uh this is a very lively debate in germany which i know that you, you you follow closely um
1: so two different points here uh one one is that i i think the, the data from Germany on the impact of the gas supply and price shocks suggest that the German industry has been far more creative and adaptive than uh, its moanings uh, at, at the outset of, uh, d- during the summer would have suggested. Um, the IFO Institute of Munich, one of the economic think tanks in Germany, um, has published data which um, show that German industry has, has been very good at saving energy and at uh, and at substituting, without affecting output, so so there, the the picture looks a lot better than suggested. Um, in whether that holds true in the long term beyond the winter and 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 the spring, I think remains to be seen. But for now, the situation is far less critical. A second separate issue is the the impact on alliance cohesion of American. Um, legislation like the Inflation Reduction Act uh, that you cited, and also the CHIPS Act, yeah. which are seen in Europe um, with, I think, with reason, as protectionist um, and as having a negative impact on, um, on European on trade and on the relationship. The, I mean, I think that this is a battle that's only just unfolding, right? Right. Um, there have been threats of counter-protectionist measures by the European Union. Um, the German Chancellor Olaf Scholz is taking the line, we need to battle um, American protectionism, which of course is something that Biden is being told by his progressive left and the trade unions which supported him, something he needs to do to maintain the support of his base. Um, the, German, the German line is, well, we need more free trade free trade agreements, uh, particularly the, we, we need to finally ratify the CETA free trade agreement with Canada, and we need to work for something similar with the Americans, um, given the debacle that was TTIP, um, the, the trade agreement that the Europeans tried to negotiate with the Obama administration, I think that one is sort of open to doubt. There is one, I think, silver lining here, which is that the Trade and Technology Council agreed between uh, set in motion, or sorry, set in place between the Biden administration and the EU promises to deliver at least some agreement on previously contentious issues issues like data privacy. Um, and, and there I think that might be perhaps used as a forum to negotiate some of these other contentious issues. Yeah,
0: it's going it's to be a tough discussion. I I want to come to your uh, FT article on the neutral states uh, in a moment, but can I just relate to you one question from Alan Jukes, uh, uh, a former minister of finance uh, here and a former director general of the, the Institute. Uh, he says, given the level of escalation of Russian attacks on Ukrainian infrastructure, is it now time for Ukraine to begin attacking military targets in Russia? God. <laughs> yes. Very,
1: <Sorry. laughs> you know, My problem is that I would have a lot of sympathy with Ukraine's wish to do that. And of course, as your questioner knows, and I'm I'm sure many others listening to this this podcast, um, is that that is something that Western governments have told Kyiv very firmly to not do. Um, and Which is why I, I think it is incumbent on us to do more um in orchestrating sort of global disapprovement of russia's current actions um honestly the, the this is where I, I suppose some of my personal experiences come in i used to be a journalist before i went into the think acting world i was defense and security editor of did zeit and i covered genocide in rwanda and, and the balkans and the war crimes tribunals and and it seems to me that what russia is has been doing the atrocities it has been perpetrating against against Ukraine are such that in that in an earlier age and and if Russia didn't have nuclear weapons and was threatening them all the time, um, we were, we would have been talking about military intervention already. It was really only our our, our crushing experiences in Afghanistan and our I think. the realization of, of a degree of impotence um, given the, the destruction wrought by Russia in Syria or, and or by Russian Russian uh, mercenaries in Syria, like the Wagner Group, that ha- is making us hold back from, from even considering any form of military intervention. Um, but, but again, this is so unprecedented. a a great power um, trying to crush uh, a sovereign nation in in, in its neighborhood, that it seems to me it is time to to have a global conversation about the impact of this on global order as a whole, the, the, uh, the dreadful precedent it sets for other rogue nations, other authoritarians, um, and to make it clear once and for all to Russia that this is utterly unacceptable and that it will and that this makes it a a pariah nation for the foreseeable future.
0: I, I I think that's right. We have a number of questions from uh, Ronan Tynan, a, a filmmaker, a, about that issue. Uh, he takes a particular interest in in what happened in in, in Syria. But I I think you've actually answered uh, substantially mm-hmm. the point which he makes, which is why why does the world allow Putin to get away with these kind of uh, 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 uh t- attacks on, on 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 humanity uh it is it is a huge moral dilemma we could have a lengthy discussion about why the rest of the world is perhaps less exercised about this than, than we believe they mm-hmm. should be
1: mm-hmm. um
0: because i think there is a, a not so much indifference but more a feeling of well this is the europeans fighting at, at it again and it's not our problem mm-hmm. uh, and perhaps they should be more worried that it, it, it is their problem but can i because we haven't got too much time left can i can I ask you to, to 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 say briefly what you set out in your FT article, and then I'm obviously going to push you a little bit uh, on how Ireland sits in in that. You 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 had an interesting reflection on the the the, the impact of all of this on the the traditionally neutral European states.
1: Right. Well, um I and mean, to to policy wonks like you and me, and and presumably some of the listeners of this podcast, um, we you know, it's been noticeable how much nations that have cherished their neutrality, like the Swiss, uh, the Austrians, and the Irish have been quietly or or very publicly discussing uh, whether that neutrality is viable and morally right in in a time of great power conflict. Um, And the the trigger of the the current debates in Switzerland and the the beginning of my my column in the FT, was this this uh, very unpleasant disagreement which is not over yet between Bern and Berlin. Um, the, the Germans have given the, uh, the, the Ukrainians very effective anti-aircraft guns, the mobile guns, the Gepard, but the ammunition was made in Switzerland and Switzerland retains a veto over its re-export or, or, or donation. And so Bern has twice refused requests by the German Defense Ministry to let it get, uh, give that ammunition to the Ukrainians. And interestingly, that's um, sort of added fuel to a fire already going on, a discussion already going on in Switzerland over its neutrality. And, and while that has now been denied, honestly, f- frankly, at this point, I wonder why, why Berlin doesn't just say, you know what, screw this. Um, forgive my language, and we're going to give it to the Ukrainians anyway, and um, you can see what happens. Um, I, I think that that debate in Switzerland is not is not over. And as for Ireland, we have seen, of course, that, that Ireland's relatively sheltered position uh, between America and the UK came into play early this spring, when the Russians decided to hold military uh, naval maneuvers off the southwest coast of Ireland um, and... You know, not uh, not coincidentally, uh, within range of important undersea cables um, that that cross the Atlantic. We've seen um, drones flowing over over Norwegian um, drilling stations. The Norwegians are generally worried about the, the strategic nuclear submarine force stationed on the Kola Peninsula, um, which the the Russians occasionally t- take for walks across the Norwegian coastline. And I think one of the things that has become clear here is that, is that really, there is, no, there is no geographical limitation to this conflict um, to Eastern Ukraine and that Western Europeans who have felt sheltered um, from all this, I think fail to understand that the Russians are perfectly capable and willing to take um, their gray zone uh, warfare, propaganda, disinformation, sabotage, uh, and other sorts of behavior to other areas of Europe, and that that has an impact on their security. And that, it seems to me, is pertinent for the Irish neutrality debate.
0: Indeed, I mean, I, the, 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 the government position here has been at all stages that Ireland is not politically neutral, but uh, there is a very, very strong attachment in this country <laughs> to our military neutrality. Um, But exactly how you define that, the the government was willing to participate, for example, in demining action in in Ukraine, which was criticized by some as somehow um, contravening our military neutrality, which I think is is, is clearly not the case. It's it's almost a humanitarian uh, act more than a military act. Um, But we also have a complicated situation where we have a triple lock, which requires uh, agreement of the uh, a UN resolution in order to deploy military resources yeah. in a situation where you have at least one member of the permanent uh, of the Security Council who is going to veto anything of that sort. Uh, how does how does that function? So this is a very active debate, Constanza. It's been a delight. I never come away from a conversation with you without feeling that I've learnt something additional. Uh, thank you so much for for taking the time to be with us today. I know it wasn't easy for you personally, and thank you for fitting it in. Uh, And I hope we can have you back again to to continue this conversation because unfortunately uh, everything we've discussed is is going to continue to evolve. uh, And in particular, the the horrific situation in Ukraine, which as you have rightly (laughs) understood, uh, should should really be be hugely preoccupying for us all. Once again, thank you you for joining us. And uh, I look forward to to catching up with you in person one of these days, okay? Take good care.
1: It was an absolute pleasure and happy Thanksgiving. All right, cheers.
0: Yes, Yes, indeed.